welcome you to episode 229 of People Have Spoken, Barry, the most popular show on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Unbelievable ratings, unbelievable stuff. Barry, do you know that? Did you know that? I, well, you know, I had my I had my suspicions. That well, that's what other people on the network say, so I figure, fuck it, we oh, might as well say it too. Right. But anyway, that's a story for another time. On this particular episode, jam-packed with fun, we have some uh, uh, stuff we're going to be talking about here. But the big news is on today's show, you saw it in the Facebook group. Barry, we are going to talk today to Max Payne. Max Payne, famous for that match with Cactus Jack, taking on the Nasty Boys. And, oh, that is our match of the week, April 17th, 1994, from Chicago, Chicago. It is street fight rules. And, holy shit, it's not long, but there's a lot of crap that goes down, Barry. There is a, uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how long the match is. It's only like 12 minutes, I think, max. But, uh, oh, I said 12 minutes max. So there what you go. I see what you did there. Yeah, exactly. But it, it really is. It's an incredible 12 minutes. This isn't a, a 12 minutes filled with rest holds, headlocks, no, and things. No, no this is not this Jack is, Briscoe and Dory Funk Jr., folks. No, not even close. So besides all that, oh, Barry, before we get started and go to the match, let's talk about the big news that came out, we didn't get a chance to talk about it. I feel like we need to at least address it. Cody and Brandy have left AEW. Now, Barry, I'm going to tell the listeners, I'll break kayfabe. Sometimes we do that here on the show. When this initially came down and I reached out and said uh, via text, uh, Barry, did you hear that uh, uh, that Cody and Brandy had left the AEW? And you said to me, eh, yeah, I- I'll believe it when I see it. You thought it was all a big work, didn't you, Barry? I did, and I got to tell you, you still I, think it is. <laughs> I'm not convinced. Look, there. Until he walks through a WWF uh, curtain or something. That's like right. That. Yeah, that's right. Well, the truth is, uh, last Tuesday night really would have made the most sense because that was the finals of the Dusty Rhodes Cup on NXT. So if Cody was legitimately Without an AEW contract and there was no restrictions, no timeline restrictions, meaning he could walk to another company. If I was going to do anything, I would have brought him out to to give the trophy to the winners and maybe turn this into an angle in some form. I just don't understand it. Cody, uh, let's let's put this out there because a lot of people hate Cody, first off, and and I don't. I, I think Cody his ego may have gotten the best of him, but Cody is, uh, he's not a, in my opinion, he's not a main event talent, but there's a place on the card for him when he left fair, I think. Yeah. Which I, right. It is. Look, the guy's got something. He's just not a main event guy. In my opinion, other people may love him. That's fine. But with that, when he left the WWE, he left because he was unhappy with his position on the card. They had made him Stardust, which I actually liked a lot. Uh, and then they'd done some other stuff. But Cody was primarily, over the last few years in the WWE, a guy, first, second, third match. But he wasn't a guy that was getting a huge push, wasn't going to be world title matches and stuff like that. I think he was U.S. champion at one point. But not he wasn't happy with the direction, and he left 
which was really, when you think about it, a really gutsy move to leave the WWE and he became a free agent. He went to ROH, much smaller company than the WWE, worked over in Japan, but literally, politically, he pulled what I think was the coup of a lifetime in getting himself attached with the Young Bucks. Kenny Omega, whoever else, and then getting into AEW with Tony Khan and the formation of that group. Stories have come out. He lost power. He was not a uh, considered for booking decisions. I've read a million stories. God knows who, who the fuck knows if any of this is true, right? I just logically don't see Cody Rhodes going to the WWE because if Vince is going to push him, He's going to push him out of the gate, and that push is going to die quickly. Cody is not he's, he's not technically over. He's not the best worker, at least the style that he's trying to work. So to me, you know, maybe Cody does wind up in the WWE, but then where is he in six months, nine months, 12 months? He's right back to the same position he's always been in. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I did hear that Cody the day after had trademarked the midnight writer. And that seems very suspicious to me. I will believe it when he shows up in a WWE ring. Maybe it's tonight, Jeff, where as we're recording this Monday night raw is on in less than four hours. Maybe Cody shows up. I don't believe it. I think he will be in AEW under uh, maybe a masked gimmick or something will happen. Something just doesn't seem right about this situation in my eyes. With that being said, I believe even Meltzer has said this is not a work that Cody there's a it looks like Cody's going to the WWE. It's been picked up by legitimate news sources. Uh, you Wait know, what? we're not legitimate. Well, no, besides us, I mean, okay. other, other legitimate news sources. Uh, I, I, I am taking a wait and see approach. I'm not, I, there's something that isn't, isn't right here. Okay. So I also have heard the scuttlebutt, the innuendo, oh. the allegations that perhaps Cody and I won't just, uh, say Cody and leave it at that Cody and Brandy, because I think you have to include both here, Barry, that maybe the egos were running amok, which is, by the way, a very good use of the word amok. I think you'll agree. Um, you know, Cody, to me, you you said it very well. I, I think he's a very good mid-card guy. Uh, he's never going to go out there and do something where it's like, what the fuck is this guy doing in the ring? But on the other hand, I think, I believe that Cody thought he was the biggest star in the company. Uh, if you ever watch his intros, uh, that whole thing coming out and just like, you know, like he thought he was the fucking rock or something, you know, or he thought he was, you know, I'm going to go back. He thought it was Ric Flair or maybe even Hogan. He thought he was a really big fucking deal. And I don't think he ever was. Now, I'm not going to shit on him. I, you know, his match with his brother was great. The, the match with Wardlow where he did the incredible spot off the top of the cage. Hey, man, I give you applause for that. That was great shit. But guess what? That doesn't mean that you're fucking Ric Flair or The Rock or Steve Austin or, or anybody of that stature. And I think he thought he was. Now, whether that was uh, Brandy you know, sitting there doing the, oh, honey, honey, you're the greatest. Uh, you need to go to that Tony Khan and tell him to fuck off because you need to get more money. I don't know. 
Maybe that's what Brandy was doing in his ear. I don't know, but somehow Cody started thinking that he was, as someone used to say, all that in a bag of fucking chips. But he wasn't. He didn't accept. And then, of course, let's not even get started on the whole fucking heel turn that absolutely should have happened. And if for whatever reason he couldn't do that, then he's lost the the forest for the trees. Because this was a guy, if he had agreed to the turn, if Brandy and Brandy, let's not even, holy shit, Barry, would Brandy have been over as a heel? What do you think? Huh? She would have been. Look, Brandy, I, it, Brandy with Dan Lambert, and there was the, you know, there was a great line about how you can get the audience to cheer a conservative middle-aged white guy, though she's, you know, that Dan Lambert was the perfect foil for her. And with that, I thought Brandy was fantastic in that role, right? She had some great lines. She was bringing it up. Something isn't right. And I'll tell you what, this is another thing you just mentioned it about, uh, you know, about the egos running amok and all that. Dustin Rhodes posted something the other day about too many egos and all this. There's too much of this out there, in my opinion. If this was legit, this would all be quiet. This this would have a fair point. Absolutely. Dust his own brother wouldn't be tweeting. And look, we don't know. He was very cryptic, but he wouldn't be tweeting. Oh, the egos are running wild. And then he tweets at the very end. I hope to be with AEW. There's big things that are going to happen. I, I hundred percent think that there's a lot more to this story. And I'll tell you what, I, if it turns out that Cody comes back underneath a mask, I don't know if this is a good look for AEW. I think the way this whole situation, you know, working the fans is one thing. I, I, because we, it's fun. First off, it's fun in a lot of ways when you work the fans. So I get that. But at the same time, there's a difference between working the fans and making your fans look incredibly foolish. And I I'm starting to think that if this is some sort of ruse, which I do think it is, I wonder if this is going to backfire in the face of AEW. That's fair. And the only other point I'll make about uh, getting back to Brandy and Dan Lambert, you know, it's never a good look when you have the guy that is, let's be honest, cutting the best promos in the business uh, during this time because Lambert has been on fire without a doubt. And when he is just a number one asshole to the fans comes to the ring with Brandy and the fans are booing Brandy. That's not a good sign. <laughs> you know, that's, that's as a as a baby face. That's not what you want. You know, Ricky and Robert, when they were fighting the Midnight Express, the fans didn't boo Ricky and Robert. I mean, I know that's a kind of a broad comparison, but I'm just saying, you know, uh, the point of Brandy coming out there, and I'm sure they were hoping that, well, Lambert's the biggest asshole in the company, other than maybe MJF. Maybe that's who they should have had, you know, coming out there with her. So guarantee Brandy would get support. But the fact that they put her with Dan Lambert and she was booed even with Dan Lambert is a bad sign. And maybe that's, Hey, you know, sometimes, uh, as they say, you got to read the room. And I just don't think if this is a, you know, if this isn't a work, I'll just quantify that. Cause you know, I don't think it is Barry still has the suspicions, but if this is the case, then Cody and Brandy really read the room badly. Well, and, and I think, I, I think we can safely say 
over the last few months that Cody and Brandy have read the room really badly, almost of uh, epic proportions. <laughs> They've been reading, and, and therein lies the issue. And look, we don't know all the details. Maybe Tony Khan was saying, Cody, you got to turn or you got to step back. The, the, the fans are just, they're eating, and Cody's ego says, no, I, I won't do that. I, he had some excuse because he does a lot of charity work or something that he couldn't turn heel. Uh, you know, if you can't see when all the fans are booing you, when you're throwing your towel in there or the belt and they're throwing it back at you, the people, the people turned Cody, Cody yeah. wouldn't take the turn. And, and that is that that's when you can't read the fucking room, right? They yeah. turned him Jeff, but he, he still wouldn't accept the turn. He I mean, was, my he God. was defiant about that. And, you know, it makes me wonder how much of uh, if if we're going to say just accepting the premise that this was all ego driven. OK, how much did them putting Cody on that show have to do with Cody's ego starting to get out of control? What do you think? I think which show, Jeff, the, I mean, the TBS, I'm talking about the TBS game show or talent show or whatever that he does. Well, and then you've also got roads to the top. Oh so, yeah. Let's, I can't forget that. So, yeah, so he had a game show, which is painful to watch by the way, especially I, I say you're a better man than I, cause I haven't spent one second on it. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's almost impossible to watch it. It is. Uh, and then you've got roads to the top, which I think is even harder to watch it. So you've got these two shows. And then the question is, you know, look, it, we're, we're, why do you choose Cody to be on these shows? Why was Cody chosen? Is the average TNT viewer at home going, oh, fuck, I got to watch this. Cody Rhodes is on. They have no idea who Cody Rhodes is, right? Yeah. No, I, I think uh, the smarter decision then and maybe now if they're still going to run with a wrestler and maybe, you know, maybe this is a case of TNT or TBS. They want to give a little rub by having uh, a wrestler on one of these programs, I, I think Jericho is, uh, or MJF yeah. is obviously, you know, you got to do one of those two guys. You got to have guys that first of all, either uh, like Jericho, the, the public's going to know that name or MJF is a guy. Okay. Maybe they don't know him, but when he gets in there and starts being the heel MJF, all of a sudden the whole fucking country is going to know about this guy. Yeah. So that's it. But even look, Jericho is going to have a bigger name based out of Fozzie. Sure. Uh, is yeah, then then Cody Rosewood. So it, it again that makes no sense, and that makes me wonder. This is all part of Cody's ego deal, and it's like, you know, I I just it, knowing the issues that Cody had, I should say knowing the issues that Dusty Rhodes had, that Cody has to be aware of. Because if you and I are aware of it, Cody's got to be fucking aware of it. Wouldn't you think? You know, okay, I'm not going to make the same mistakes maybe my dad made for the good of the company, for the good. And it, no, it, just the opposite. So the whole thing to me is a clusterfuck. And even if this thing is a work, and again, I do believe it is, I think in some way it's going to backfire unless Cody is coming back full out heel. Because if he thinks he's going to come back as a baby face, I don't see that working. I think this is this is amped up the uh, dislike towards Cody even more. So before we get to our match of the week, our match of the week, as I said, from April 17th, 1994 in Chicago, we are going to be joined by uh, Max Payne. First time ever, Barry, we're going to have a guest join us to discuss his memories of the match. But I know that our friend Max Payne, friend of the show, he's officially been classified as that, uh, has an appearance coming up with Nick Massey. Why don't you tell the folks about that? Oh, man. And so we we've talked about this and we've. Uh... You know, with Max Payne, too, he is the absolute right guy. 
because it, you'll hear this interview. And Jeff, can I break kayfabe for a moment, or do I sit on this information? Go ahead and uh, breeze the kiaze, brother. So you're just going to hear a part of Max Payne's interview today. I think we've got maybe three hours in the can so far, and there's more coming. This is almost the Greg Gagne where we did a what two and a half hour interview or something crazy with Greg and Bob Roop who can go. Max Payne is not lobbying or jockeying for a job with any of the major wrestling companies. He doesn't give a shit. He wants to state. He also takes credit and blame for a lot, a lot of his failures, which I like. He's not putting that on somebody else. But the one thing I take away from Max first off is really likable guy. Because he he literally just comes across as a guy that you want at the table with you, drinking, eating, and just shooting this shit. But he is uh, he's legit. This is a, a legit guy, and I can't say enough. If you have the chance to meet him, I would go out of my way to try and meet Max Payne. Because if you've liked any of his work, whether it was WWF as Man Mountain Rock or WCW as Max Payne or, you know, Buffalo Peterson, Daryl Peterson, whatever it might be, you got two opportunities to meet him. The first is going to be a virtual signing. So you can't get to New Jersey to meet him in person. You're going to be able to meet him at uh, Captain's Cabana Party Number 5, taking place on March the 5th at 10 p.m. Later start time, Max Payne is a rock and roller. I'm going to guess this goes 10 to 1, 10 to 2. Nick has told me that the last time they had Max Payne on, they went like two hours over the time that they were supposed to. So that's another thing. He's not sitting there. Look, you and I have talked about Ric Flair, right? Ric Flair watches the fucking clock, right? <laughs> like yep. He watches the clock. Max Payne doesn't give a shit. Max Payne is here to have a good time. He wants to talk to you. He wants to answer your questions. And we have great news. He's not going to bullshit you on the answers either. He's going to tell you 100%. Again, that is Saturday, March the 5th, 10 p.m. start time. Captain's Cabana, party number five. Nick will be posting a link in our Facebook group. If you want to meet the man in person, he is available the next day, which would be March the 6th, beginning at 11 a.m., going until 2. It's at the Wrestling Collector. It's a live in-store signing in Stockholm, New Jersey. That is not Stockholm, Sweden. (laughs) Uh, That's a private joke, folks. That is. uh, We have been told, Jeff, that there may be a 6'4" blonde, blue-eyed Swedish chick with huge tits at the event. And uh, if that's the case, I'm getting in my car now to to make sure I make it on time. Uh, But we do encourage you, look, support our people, support the guests on this show, support the vendors who supply the guests. That way we'll keep getting great guests. And when I say Max Payne is a great guest, I'm undervaluing how great he really is. Again, that's Sunday, March the 6th. The Wrestling Collector in Stockholm, New Jersey, or the virtual signing the night before starting at 10 p.m. My God, was he a great guest, Jeff. I will say, uh, before we throw it to the match, you know, we've had excellent guests here that have come on, uh, talk, you know, Greg Gagne, he, he gave us a lot of wrestling content, you know, uh, Bob Roop, Lord knows, uh, you know, Bob, always willing to tell us a great story. But if you want to take, talk about all-time great guests, people will always tell Barry and myself the Sean Royal interview, okay? When <laughs> Sean just fucking went off the handle and started oh, yeah. telling us a story, that's the kind of content you're going to get from Max fucking Payne because 
He doesn't uh, hold anything back. I will just say for those of you that are uh, subscribers to our Patreon content, look out for the story about Max and Samu in Japan in a bar when things go sideways because it is a fucking unbelievable story. So on that note, future stuff to look forward to. I can't recommend Max Payne's stuff enough. Barry, let's go to our match of the week and let's go to Chi-Town and do a little street fighting, Bear. So, Barry, our match of the week this week, we go to uh, the 17th of April, 1994, in Chicago. What better time to talk about this match of the week, which is Cactus and Max Payne versus the Nasty Boys uh, in a street fight, than to have Max Payne join us. Max, welcome to Breaking Capable Dodger and Barry, my man. Very, 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 very nice to be here. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's very 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 nice. It might be very nice, but I don't know. Nobody's ever said that before. Yeah, I know. Very, we got to get one more in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll throw quite it frank, in. Down quite the- frankly, we're kind of assholes, and no one's ever been. We that are. Place, we so. are. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> so <laughs> well, then right I away, <laughs> before I throw it, before I throw it to Barry, Max, tell me your memories of this match. Anything leading up to it? Uh, Post match uh, stuff. Quite the street fight, quite the scuffle between the four of you guys. You know, by the time we got to here, I guess I just pissed about everybody off because nobody was really talking to me much by here. So, as was the case with the nasty boys in this situation, I just, you know, I got like told at the last minute. It was one of those things that. You don't really need to know much more than what you need to know, which isn't much. Just fight your ass off all the way through the building is pretty much what they, what we decided we were going to do. But a lot of the stuff that, you know, turned out really quite amazing. Like I said, I wasn't involved in the planning of it. I, I, I just wasn't involved in that part of it. But I certainly got to participate in it. I guess I didn't, you know, because I was really removed. I wish they could understand and tell you a little more why. Maybe it was it was probably as much my fault as anything. But so often we would go to the matches and uh, it was obvious folks had been talking. I'm talking about Mick and the Nasty Boys had talked and communicated at some level, but hadn't involved me because usually I was like, Hey Max, come on over here. We got everything planned, blah, blah, blah. And then that, that's the way it would, that's the way it would go. So, um, the one thing that I really remember about that match is first of all, the shots, you know, everybody had talked about the shots that Mick took. But Shags and Mick took, listen, that's a given. <laughs> Fucking, I don't know how Mick lived through the couple of shots he took. To yeah, the, the, the shovel shots were pretty fucking scary, I got to tell you. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm, yeah. The shovel shots were, you know, as bad as the bump on the concrete. But when Sags runs down, when the table busts in half and smashed Nick on the, or Mick on the side of the stage, Jags picks up half the table and runs down and smashes me in the head with the half the table. I was not prepared. And, you know, that was, uh, 
it, it was about as stiff as you get. It knocked me out. Seriously knocked me out. Max, I know not, Mick was not to interrupt also, but there's a, a spot in there where Sags picks up what is a folding chair to hit you in the back, but doesn't fold the chair. So oh my the, God. the point of Every the seat that, hits you yeah. directly in your back. Yeah, right in the middle of my upper back. Yeah. You know, that's that's what I'm saying, you know. And, and what's amazing about that, you know, it's still funny because, you know, this all revolves around the shoulder incident, right? This is all about that shit. And I'm sticking by my guns and will until the day I die. That was Nobbs' fault that he got hurt on the throat because he didn't trust me. And the reason he didn't trust me is because he didn't trust anybody because those guys were assholes with people's bodies. And, you know, and including their own, you know, they weren't exactly sporty fitness guys either. And they, they were very abusive with their bodies and the shit they did too. So, you know, it was, um, that match, uh, what I do remember, first of all, that chair caught me right between, in fact, I have, I have this disease in my back called DISH, which I wouldn't even try to explain the acronym of it, but it basically means my spine overcorrects itself if it gets injured in terms of its uh, bone mass. And where that chair hit me in the, the middle of my upper back, the two vertebrae actually fused themselves together because of uh, the damage that was done in that particular match. Ouch. So yeah, it was a, that, what I, the biggest memory I have that night is Mick and I were walking across the United Center parking lot and he was coughing up pieces that I swear to God, I thought they were his liver. This was post-match, obviously. Yeah, we were, yeah, we were on our way out of the, you know, we were out of the United Center. We left right after the match, you know, obvious, obvious to get out. So we beat the crowd and, you know, and Mick was coughing up blood and I'm like, Mick, you're bleeding internally. And he's going, no, no, I'm not. It's just, I got to get these couple of things. <laughs> I'm like, I think that was, I think that was part of your fucking, I think that's your spleen right there, pal. Jeez. Fuck me. You know, Mick and Mick and I, from the very first time I met Mick, you know, I, man, he scared me. You know, I love Mick. And I, you know, he and I just missed each other in Memphis by like literally the next week after I left, he came in. And I was really sad to have missed Mick, especially once I got to know him. But, you know, once again, I, the Nasty Boys, wow, I think. I think the Nasty Boys and Mick and I could have had a run with those guys for a couple of fucking years. Well, and probably probably left the program in a wheelchair too, right? Yeah. Oh no, shit. Yeah. Well, that's just it. You know, that that was the problem. But um, because of what happened, obviously things things were different. 
So, you know, what's interesting about this, too, and, we, and I'll I'll talk about the match, but then I want to get your thoughts on the Nasty Boys individually. So I, I made a bunch of notes, as we normally do. It's a little different because we actually have a participant in the match with us today, Jeff, uh, which we normally don't. But so the, my first note it says stiff shots, especially with the pool cue. They, they, yeah. There's a pool cue. People are laying into it. The folding chair shot into the middle of your back. I got to tell you, when I saw it, I grabbed my back and I went, Jesus Christ, that really hurt. There is a great line. I believe it's Tony Schiavone that says it. You're fighting with, I think it's knobs. I, I always get them confused. Says, when I get show. out of here. <laughs> no, yes, no. The, I, yes. That was but the best yeah. part. Yeah. But they're, they're at the, uh, the merchandise table. And Tony says, oh. as Max Payne is shoving a, a nasty boy's shirt down his throat, Tony Schiavone says, I don't think that shirt even fits him. <laughs> Which I think yeah, right. that's, one of, that's one of the great lines of all time. And then when all the weapons are out, Bobby Heenan and Bobby Heenan, who had some great one-liner, says more weapons than Tanya Harding's dressing room. That took some thought. <laughs> uh, but he was, great, wasn't he? he was when he was on. Heenan was on. Oh. That was a oh. great line. I love um, Bobby. And then my last line with this, the, the last note that I took, Sags goes to pile drive cactus on a table. The table then collapses. How dangerous yeah. that looked when the table collapsed. That wasn't meant. But I guess my question for you is, you had a reputation of, you know, and I, I know that you may view this differently, but you had a reputation as being a guy not to fuck with in professional wrestling, a guy who could, hey, you're not a small guy, a, a guy who was big, but a guy with serious, serious amateur credentials, a guy you couldn't fuck with. What do you think goes through the nasty boys' heads? I realize they might be good in a street fight, but I, I just, I'd have to think, you know, Brian Nobbs, of all people, What's going through Brian Knobs' head is he's fucking with you during this match with some of these stiff shots because I would assume you could take him out easy. Would there has be to be a receipt waiting at the end of the road. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, it, it's so funny. I don't – critics and being criticized doesn't bother me. I, that's happened to me a lot throughout my career, and I'm okay with that because that's just the deal. And, you know, guys like Knobs and, you know, the wrestling, but that's it. Yeah, I, I'll be honest with you, and maybe they won't say it, so I will. But guys that are shooters, you have to have an extra special kind of sentiment to have been a shooter in your life and then be a professional wrestler. Because I have a newspaper clipping from the Iowa State, you know, their campus newspaper of me. They're asking me after the NCAA championships, you know, hey, are you going to go be a professional wrestler like Chris Taylor was? And I said, are you fucking ribbing me? That shit's all fake. You know, amateur wrestlers, no matter what, any amateur wrestler, you know, from Kurt Angle to, you know, Pickett, I don't care who it is. I hope I didn't, you know, I wasn't trying to offend anybody by leaving somebody out there, but there's enough amateur guys in the business. You have, when you when you become let me let me put this this way, and this is the part I guess that that bothers me the most about 
my sadness that I never fucked with anybody, never, that didn't deserve it, okay? Never. If you pushed me into a point where I had to defend myself, then I did so. And that's what Brian Nobbs did. And I warned him. It would have been different if I didn't say to Nobbs, you're either going to go or I'm going to make you go. You know, I told him that before the match. I'm tired of not getting my shit in. I'm tired of you guys calling every fucking thing and, you know, to make you guys fucking shit look good. And then you hurt us all the time. And Mick was, Mick didn't, you know, Mick was in a little different scenario in the company than I was. And I'm one of those guys who, oh, goodness, you know, I'm willing to say, go fuck yourself on Main Street. I'm not going to get fucking, you know, Brian Nobbs isn't going to push me around because he's fucking buddies with Hogan, you know? I'm just that guy. I just don't, I'm not very good at playing the game when it comes to that. But by the same token, I'm also a professional. And everybody I ever worked with, Guys like Bill Eady and the guy that broke me in, Red Bastines, they always warned me, Max, you're going to have to be careful because you're a big fucking dude. You're a shooter, and people are going to be fucking worried. You're going to blow them up and stretch them, you know? Well, that's not what the fucking business is about. You know, I was in a match one night in Vienna, Austria, where a fucking wrestling fan thought he was going to jump in the ring and kick my ass. and. He didn't understand wrestlers very well. And we, needless to say, the outcome for him came out very negatively. But I will never forget, as I was getting up off this guy, the absolute silence in the audience. That wasn't fun. They didn't like that. You know, wrestling's there to give you... It, it, it's, it's no different than a movie. It's just sometimes it takes a lot longer to get to the final outcome, is which is what? Closure. You know, wrestling's designed to have good guys, bad guys, good guys win. This is all metaphorically speaking. Because, you know, it used to be they wore fucking patent leather, fucking baby blue patent leather boots or pink patent leather boots and wrestling trunks made by out of polyester by KNH fucking shorts and boots made by B-Bar-A. You know, that's just the way it was. Well, that that's all changed now, but the, this fundamental of wrestling is still the same. The fucking business is a work. You know? I didn't fucking get in the wrestling business to prove my fucking college amateur wrestling ability. I understood from the moment that I was taught the wrestling business that I had to throw my fucking shooting ways out the window. I know that sounds ridiculous, right? But I just don't know how else you could state it, you know? You're only fucking a winner in the professional wrestling business because somebody else allowed you to be that. Absolutely. Winning and losing is fucking irrelevant in the wrestling business. It's you know, one completely... Of the thing, what- one of the things, uh, Max, that, that Barry and I have mentioned on the show before is uh, in professional wrestling, the object is to not hurt your opponent. And Absolutely. <laughs> unfortunately, Absolutely. sometimes there's there are guys that forget that. You know, I just want – I got to tell you, I just – you know, I've, I'm a mark for the fucking uh, – you can name it, fucking Macho Man, fucking 
uh, Andre Hogan. I, I built the cage for Hogan at WrestleMania too. So, you know, I was standing right there the whole fucking time. But here's the, you know, here's the fucking thing is wrestling is, it's designed. It's there for people to design. You know, this is one of my favorite quotes. I love uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger in Pumping Iron. He talks about when he lifts. I don't remember the whole quote, but he talks about the, how he compares it to uh, coming in the original movie. And and I, I always thought there was a, a such an irony in that. And as I started, as you become a wrestler and you do it more and more, you realize how difficult it really is. And it's never, it's never it's never shown how amazing wrestling is because of what wrestlers actually do. I always called it spontaneous choreography. You know, it's one of those things that unless you understand what's going on behind the scenes of wrestling, it's so fucking difficult. But I was watching this great fucking show on the Macho Man, one of those A&E, you know, shows. I'm sure you guys have seen them all. Sure. And Steamboat is talking about the match at WrestleMania 3. And I don't know if you saw this, but he he talked about Macho Man calling him like a month or something before the match. Oh, yeah. They they planned the whole match out literally spot by spot. He even had been, he, he even knew still remembered the number of fucking spots. It's like <laughs> yeah. 170 or some fucking thing that, that he'd written all out, you know? And and he had to fucking before they went went out, they met in their fucking room the night before, and fucking Dragon had to go over it fucking verbatim and had to know it verbatim. But the proof's in the pudding, and if you remember, what was the punchline that Ricky Steamboat said that was amazing? Randy got fucking beat. In the middle of the ring, one, two, three, by Steamboat, I believe, in WrestleMania three. And by the time he got to the fucking curtain, he had more fucking heat than he did before he went to the fucking ring. People wanted to see him get his ass kicked again already. And when they got back in the back, that's what Randy was proud of. He was proud of the fact that he just fucking put a big baby face over in the middle of the fucking ring. But before he got back to the back of the fucking dressing room, he'd already fucking got his heat back and people were fucking throwing fucking cups of ice and drinks and shit on him and cussing at him and flipping him off. Now, how many guys in the wrestling business at the top that were in the click really understand that mentality right there? You know, I won't, I won't throw names out, but I've, the guys that were at the very tippy top, some of them got it, but most of them, it's funny. It's just wrestlers constantly try to prove how badass they are. Yet the truth of the matter is, it's not about being badass. It's about not killing each other so that you can go down the road. It's it's like being a cop. Make sure you go home safe every night, you know? And it, it has nothing, technically, it should have not a fucking thing to do with the ego because there's no place for ego in it. I mean, really, it's meant to entertain the crowd. And as soon as you walk fucking past the curtain, kayfabe's over. 
You know, you know, Max, one oh. of the things that, that Barry and I spoke about recently, uh, we were talking about, uh, and then we'll get back to the match because I want to finish our thoughts on the match, uh, was Ric Flair. You know, so many people say that Ric Flair was the greatest of all time. Yeah, some agree, yeah. some don't, but a majority of people will say that. But what I never understood, and, you know, maybe since you were in that uh, WCW dressing room with them for, for a time, maybe you could shed some light on this. I never understood a guy that is told constantly Man, you're the fucking man, Rick. Man, you're you're the man. How can a guy that's been told that for the last, you know, at that point, 15 years, be so fucking insecure about himself? I never understood that. So I want once again, I won't use names, but it, 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 this this will answer that question in a roundabout way. <laughs> I was coming out of CNN Center one day, and. Uh, there was a guy walking in that, like I said, I'm not going to name names, but I said, Hey, how you doing? You know, I fucking just got my paycheck. He's going in to get his paycheck. I know what he's there for. Right. We all went there every other Friday to get our fucking paychecks. So I knew he was there to pick up a fucking paycheck. And at this particular time, he wasn't getting used that heavily. And I said, Hey, how you doing? He goes, Oh, fuck, man. I'm just fucking miserable. And I said, why? And he goes, dude, I'm just sitting here. I'm not getting used. And blah, 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 blah. And I, I said, uh, but you're getting a paycheck, right? Yeah, but, I, you know, I will, fuck, I want to push. I want to I wanna get over. I want to get out there. I want to fucking, you know, go work in towns and stuff and everything else. And I'm like, well, okay, I guess I understand that, but you know, I mean, if somebody's willing to pay you while you're sitting in the background, fucking go to the gym, be happy, and shut the fuck up till they decide to use you. I mean, that's what I would do. It just seems like the right thing to do, right? Sure. Later on, I went up to, uh, I went to New York, ran into the same individual in New York, and uh, now he's a fucking superstar. Now he's running down the road, fucking making shitloads of money. So I said the same thing to him. I said, hey, how you doing, brother? Man, things are going good. Fuck, man. I'm on the road all the time. Shit's tough, man. I'm never home to see my wife. That's the classic example. If you're fucking miserable without money or a push or nowhere, you're miserable. It, whether you've got it or you don't and if you're insecure you're insecure whether you're i just watched the lady gaga thing here's a fucking woman that can fucking entertain a hundred thousand people by herself with a microphone and she's as insecure as they come that's part of the deal with you know with uh whenever people that's i guess that's the voice in your head that drives your heels i know how i felt i was always insecure too i think that's like i said i think that's the thing that motivates any athlete to you know to carry on i just wish wrestling would take uh and, and probably never will i always just dreamed wrestling could go to this other level that it could be appreciated which it already is but it's still not quite there yet and this is what i mean by that to me it's a shame that wrestling professional wrestling isn't in the olympics the thing is, you would just have to judge it different. It would have to be judged more like, you know, ice skating, you know, 
or hold up cards when they do a fucking international perfect, you know? You can fucking do a high spot, and, you know, you know, nine and a half on the fucking tackle, you know. <laughs> so, but and well, then how good how good they are at being a heel, and how good they are at being a baby face. I mean, I, I just think you know the, that part of the mystery of wrestling is over. I think everybody's already decided when they walk into a you know a wrestling match, they fucking just like they do a movie. They sit down, they put their hands on the armrest, and they go, okay. I'm going to suspend my disbelief. Take me away. Give me my fantasy for the night. And um, I think wrestling is not that much different. And it probably won't be that much different ever because that's just the nature of what it is. But I think um, I think it could change. I do. I don't know if it will, but that's, you know, that's yeah. my personal opinion. I felt that way all along and I, I've said that from the beginning. I've always thought there needed to be a union to protect <clears throat> guys that don't protect themselves. And I've always I've always thought it should be really forward thinking of how do we take it to... Because in Japan, I, I, I'm sure you know this, they look at wrestling much different. Oh, yeah. Because it's been exposed there uh, more than once. Tiger Mask wrote a book called K-Fabe and fucking completely exposed it. And uh, I don't know if you know that, but he did. And the Japanese, look, when they watch a wrestling match, they almost judge it like that. You know, they it takes a lot to get them into the point. And, and if you watch them, the things that the Japanese wrestling fans pop on are are the high spots convincing enough. You know, it's sort of, it, it really is. You almost feel like they can hold up card, you know. Hey, that was a nine, you know. Yeah. Well, listen, let me let me get back to the match real quick just to finish up uh, uh, this segment. So, uh, Barry, a couple things I noticed. How many times did uh, either Shivani or Heenan reference Aaron Neville? A, <laughs> a lot. And but like, if, like somebody was going to a concert uh, later that night or that was week he there that night, though. I don't know. Like, but like they must have dropped his name five times. Yes, exactly. So, and then uh, nothing like a, uh, a a timely reference. Uh, at one point, I think it was Heenan said something like, when this match is over, the guys are going to have to go visit Quincy, which <laughs> I think Quincy had been off the air like what, 12 years at that point. So, you know, that, yes. that was kind of funny. Yeah, yeah, the shovels, the chairs, the tables, the suplex with the table uh, by one of the nasty boys. Uh, I love the random sales stand that no one's at. Yes. But just happens to be there. You know, yeah. I, would, I was thinking it reminded me of the, uh, remember Barry, the famous battle of new Orleans from UWF. Oh, yeah. yeah. Where, where of course they had this random beer stand that nobody was at that just happened to be <laughs> in the area where they were brawling to. That was yeah. funny. So, uh, the last thing I want to ask you about this, of course, I really love this match. It was a great brawl, but, um, what I wanted to ask you is, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, of course, Max, the shots, not only that you took, uh, that Barry talked about this, but the shots that 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 Mick took to the head, especially the ones with the shovel, which just looks so fucking scary. And now knowing all we know about CTE and the long term yeah. damage, like yeah. in retrospect, are you almost kind of like, wow, we shouldn't have been doing that shit? Well, fuck yeah, not that you asked for it, of course. Well, especially. Especially when we've seen what the fucking final results are. I mean, sure. 
it would be different if I didn't know the guy and fucking he was my roommate. You know, I mean, Chris and I did, we did a street fight and I think we called, and if it, in fact, I think that's where the idea came from is we were doing these things in Europe called Irish street fights. And I think that's where the Chicago street fight came from, the idea. I don't know that you guys might have much more of a knowledge of where the idea came from, but we were doing these matches with Fit Finley and Bruiser Mostino and myself and Chris in Germany in uh, Otto Bonds' territory. And we were doing the same shit, fighting through the building. And, uh, you know, no matter what, those kind of matches, man, they kick your ass. I don't care. You know, Jesse said something once. I've never forgotten. I never. He said, I never got out of the ring that I wasn't in pain. And, uh, you know, like I said, that the shot I took to the head with the table at the end, it doesn't even, that's why, that's why the nasty boys were so fucked up to work with. They hurt you and their, their fucking stuff looked like shit. <laughs> I mean, it's going to fucking hurt you. I wish it looked really, really good. Jesus. You know, you, yeah. you no matter what though, as a wrestler, you get used to, you know, that it's just, and it's funny now that I'm 60 years old and I'm getting my ass kicked right now, man. I, I mean, I've got, I've got about five surgeries in front of me and I don't know any way around it. You know, they're just that kind of thing. But man, when you're young and you do that stuff, you think you're invincible, you know, you don't think that shit's ever going to catch up with. You don't think that, you know, the earth's going to spin around the sun a shitload more times. And all of a sudden you're going to go, Oh God, that shot that I took from Sags in the back shows up every morning. Now, when he, now when even I talk about it, like when you started talking about it, I could feel it in my back where he hit me. So quick, quick question and a, and a point of reference to with this. So years ago, and this would be, I think, early 90s maybe even late 80s there was a story out there where the nasty boys beat the shit out of ken shamrock jeff i think you've heard this story right correct yeah so they and max i don't know if you've ever heard this story so they beat up ken shamrock and this was outside of the ring this was at a hotel one night they jumped him there was a sucker punch he was unconscious and they laid into him and Ken didn't do anything for several years. And I, mm -hmm. and I, I don't know the, all the details, but I do know that he got some payback. There was a receipt in some form that came years later. So with the nasty boys taking liberties with you, and again, you seem like the last person that anyone would want to take liberties with. Was there ever a receipt to either knobs or sags? Well, yeah, it's funny how, you know, <laughs> bullies in the end are the biggest pussies of all, you know. I mean, that's just the way it is. I mean, any any bully you've ever been around is always the first fucking guy to run with his tail between his legs. So, you know, that's why it wasn't a receipt when I fucking stuffed his shoulder. It was his stupidity and his lack of trust because he didn't trust anybody and it was his own bio fucking nature that caused his failure, not mine. So I'll, I'll argue anything. I'll argue with that with anybody, you know, I, I don't know. That's a tough one to, you know, put a finger on exactly. I don't know. 
Knobs and knobs and sags put put if they if somebody puts you in a position where you gotta defend yourself, then you gotta defend yourself. That's all there is to it. And if you don't, you'll regret it and guys like that will walk all over you the rest of you the rest I mean that and that's I mean it doesn't surprise me that they sucker punched somebody like Ken Shamrock because they know they couldn't face him straight on. That's what they did to me. I mean, all they ever did to me was walk around and talk about me behind my back. Here's what they did to me. They didn't face me and do anything. They called Hogan and fucking told Ken. I mean, I, I'm, how, why am I saying that? Well, I'm saying that because that's exactly what Knobs told me he did. He said, you fucking stupid fucker. I called fucking Terry and told him, it's like, what, what he, is it, what is your fucking, you know, is he, it's like, Terry, Max, hurt me. I can't, it's like, fuck you, pussy. You know what I mean? It's like, God damn, don't you, that's the problem with those, with, with the click and that mentality of people. They're, 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 that's what I was trying to say earlier. They're, if you're not a badass, you're not a badass. You either are or you're not. I'm not a badass. I'm just not going to, I, that's not who I am. I can take care of myself, but I'm not a badass because I don't go out of my way ever to fucking hurt somebody. In fact, I'll be honest with you guys. I've never fucking hit anybody with a close fist in my entire life. Maybe I didn't really need to hit anybody with a close fist, but that's beside the point. The truth of the matter is if you're a badass, you're badass and guys like fucking you know, I, they're lucky somebody like Shamrock didn't fucking catch him in a, you know, an alley and tear their fucking arms off and beat him over the head with the bloody ends of it. Barry, joining us today, it's a man with more than one name. It's not just Daryl Peterson. It's Max Payne. It's uh, Barry. How many other gimmicks did Max have? Man Mountain Rock. We said Daryl Peterson, which I believe was also Buffalo Peterson over in Germany. So. There were a few ones. For me, though, he's always going to be Max Payne and the original Max Payne as well, Jeff. Max, thanks for joining us, buddy. How are you doing today? Oh, I, you know, I'm just ecstatic to be around, my friends. Well, I always say every day above ground is better than one below, right? So That's exactly right. An old miner's sentiment. Uh, <laughs> so... Every day above ground is a good day. (laughs) I always believe in starting at the beginning. Tell us uh, when you first started getting into wrestling, Iowa State, go Cyclones. How did you uh, end up at Iowa State? Actually, my wrestling career started really young. I I started doing like little kids programs in like second grade, and I didn't, I didn't really like it very much. And then, I was in the wrestling room and this guy kicked my ass. I mean, just beat the fuck out of me, stretched me from top to bottom. And I swore I was going to grow up and kick that son of a bitch's ass. And he was only probably a 150 pounder at the time. And I was young enough that I was still, you know, like in, it was funny because between sixth and seventh grade is when I got my growth spurt. And between in that summer, I grew so fast that my bones literally grew out of my skin. I have stretch marks on the top of my shoulders still from how fast I grew in that time. So when I went back to school, I was a fucking huge kid, you know, and this guy just beat my ass. And when I got hold of something and went back to wrestling and got good at wrestling and went, you know, 
we ended up being friends because the first time he saw me, he knew I was hunting for him. And he said, oh, please don't kill me, Daryl. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no problem, Bryce. We're good, man. His name was Bryce Moseman. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those things. You know, the I started my first wrestling match was in a town called Tooele, Utah. And my coach had just taught me a few simple big man moves. And, man, I could hit them motherfuckers like it was going out of style. And uh, even at 14 years old, I was, at 14 years old, I was six foot four, 275 pounds. I was the biggest kid on the team at 14 years old. And so there was a couple of times when the heavyweight at the time, I was just a freshman in high school, and the heavyweight at the time, couldn't go to a couple of the matches. He had some other deal going on. I don't remember what it was, but my coach made me go to this city called Price, Utah. And it's funny. We just talked about miners. It is like mining central in the state of Utah. It's the biggest coal mines, like in the Western United States. It's fucking huge. And the guy I was wrestling against was a fucking state champion. So here I am, a freshman. I've wrestled like three matches, right? And I go to this high school. I mean, it's just like, you know, it really was like, a, I, I look back at it now, and I, I I don't know how I didn't, I know how it survived. But I go out, and I wrestle this guy. And my coach told me before the match, he said, man, this guy is susceptible to the role. He said, you'll get him. <laughs> Bigger than shit, I went out there and pinned a freshman, pinned their senior state champion. And when I did, you could have heard a fish fart in the building. I mean, it was packed to the rafters because this guy was like their big stud, you know? And uh, it just, it was one of those fucking moments that that's when you decide, oh yeah, I'm doing this for the rest of my life. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It, it was amazing. 14 years old and my coach is, you know, jumping 10 feet in the air and so excited. And anyway, I went on and had a great season that season and uh, a whole bunch of things. I won't bore you with all the details, but a whole bunch of things came into play. And I was going to play football and not wrestle because I, in the end, I didn't, even though you know, as a freshman, I was like getting ready because I couldn't play high school football yet. I couldn't play till I was a sophomore. So my coach comes to me and he says, uh, so you're going to wrestle this year, right? That's why I went into wrestling as a freshman, because he said to me, so if you don't wrestle, you're not playing football. I said, what? Okay, I'll wrestle. So I I went and then I ended up loving wrestling. And then they got in the guy that was my favorite coach left. They got a new football coach. And I ended up wrestling and not playing football. And uh, then what really changed my life was a wrestling movie came through Utah at the time. A guy named Keith Merrill made a movie called Takedown. It's on, uh, it's on Netflix, or not Netflix, but uh, YouTube. You just type in Takedown 1978 or 79, and it will come up. And um, at 16 years old, I got a major role in a motion picture. I mean, it's if you go, if you ever have the desire to go watch, it's actually pretty damn good. It's a pre, it's a predecessor to Vision Quest, actually. 
It was like the first legitimate wrestling movie. You know what I mean? And uh, Disney bought it, distributed it, and it did really good in the Western United States, but it changed my life completely. In that year, 1978, I was second in region, second in state, having never wrestled a practice with my team because I was doing a movie, drove myself to all the matches, got there late most of the time. And because all the referees knew me and knew I weighed over 175 pounds, they didn't care if I weighed in or not. So I drove myself to all the matches. I dropped out of high school in March of my junior year, and I was married by June and had a child by December. And in the process of all that, somehow Oklahoma State found out about me and wanted me to come to school there. And they started recruiting me, and I ended up not going there. I ended up going to North Idaho Junior College for two years, where I was a national champ, two-time All-American, third and first national champion on a national championship team. And truly another story for another time. I will tell that story eventually. It's one of those really incredible stories that, wow, it, it, it was amazing. And then I was recruited by a lot of major Schools. I was recruited by University of Oklahoma, where Dr. Death Steve Williams was going to school, and he's the guy that showed me around, actually, Oklahoma State at the time. And both the uh, Schultz brothers were there when I went there to, to be recruited, uh, Mark and David Schultz. Andre Metzger, was, who was a great wrestler. And uh, so I was recruited by Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Iowa State. The funny part about Iowa State and why I chose Iowa State after JUCO was because my wife at the time, now my ex-wife, was from Des Moines. And when we got married, we went to Des Moines on our honeymoon, and her uncle introduced me to the head coach of Iowa State to see if they could get me in, even though I was a junior. And he said, no, let's see if we can get you in this Catholic <laughs> I know this sounds like bullshit, right? <laughs> I think we can get you into Catholic High School in, in Des Moines called Dowling. And it's, uh, so I went, I met with the, the coach, and he's like, dude, I want you to come here. We need a heavyweight really bad. But he goes, I just don't see the Holy Father of the school saying, yeah, let's have a Mormon kid who dropped out of high school, has an illegitimate, you know, has an out-of-wedlock child come to high school in Dowling where they're already being accused of recruiting <laughs> in a high school. So it, he, he called me the next day and said, no, uh, yeah, he said no. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> I would father put the uh, kibosh on oh, Yeah. <laughs> Oh, fuck yeah. He said, yeah, are you ribbon? Christ, we'll have every fucking newspaper on the front porch tomorrow. And um, so I, I went home and I went about it the hard way. And as soon as I won the national championship, Dr. Harold Nichols was standing right at the corner of the mat. And he goes, uh, he's, God, he was, a, he was a great man. I don't know if any of you know who he was, but he was, he was Dan Gable's coach. Oh, wow. Most people would know that. And Chris Peterson's coach, he was truly one of the great wrestling coaches of all time. And I'm absolutely honored to have known him and wrestled for him. And he was just this funny little 
old guy who had just brilliantly parlayed his wrestling coachdom into a literal fortune. He bought the the football stadium that Iowa State has built, the, the stadium they built, uh, the land they built the stadium on. My coach bought it for $50 an acre when it was a swamp. And I gave him and gave him like $5 million for it 25 or 30 years later to build the current Cyclone Stadium on. So he was just one of those guys who had just done everything. It was amazing. And so I went to Iowa State for three years, and it was truly just, it was spectacular. I had just a great time and a great experience there, too. You know, and uh, swore to God I wouldn't professional wrestle. You know, fuck that shit. That's phony fucking shit. I ain't doing that. <laughs> I'm a real wrestler. People would say to me, I'd go to the airport, you know, and they go, oh, wow, you're big, dude. What do you do? What, what, what position do you play? I said, I play football. I'm a wrestler. Oh, I watch that shit on TV. I was like, no, you don't. You don't watch me wrestle on TV. This is the real shit. And I get pissed at people. And, uh, I wasn't in L.A. for two weeks after I left college to go. I, I graduated. I went back to school to get a degree in television and film and uh, did so and immediately moved to Los Angeles after college to seek fame and fortune. And within two weeks, I was. I'd met Red Bastine and was on my way to working for the WWF, building the ring and the cage and going to training school and being a part of WrestleMania too. And so there you go, brothers. That's the whole, that obviously there's a shitload of detail left in there, but that's the whole story in a nutshell right there. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, first off that, that may have been Jeff, the greatest response to a first question we've ever got. <laughs> I hate the fact that, that Max is shy and just exactly that we have to get back. Oh God. No, listen, <laughs> yeah. I'm a long winded son of a bitch. So, you know, you'll have to, you, don't be shy to cut me off. Too, you know? I don't want to. Other first that occurred, Jeff, I don't believe we've ever had someone on that spent their honeymoon in Des Moines, Iowa. That's true. Uh, That's true. And, and we also got oh, a vision God. quest. We got a vision quest reference, which I know we all love that movie. Yes. Uh, uh, however, I do want to let Max know that, uh, you know, you said uh, my wife at the time or my ex-wife, uh, Barry and I both familiar with the marital wars. <laughs> yes, Max, we are. So, uh, <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> Uh, yes. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm not talking about, I I certainly wouldn't, you know, I've learned in, in life that you can certainly attract a lot more honey or a lot more flies with honey than you can with vinegar. And I, you know, the last thing I want to do is dump any more gasoline on a fire, no matter how old the fire is, it's still smolder. So you want to try and stay away, away from that as much as possible. You know, it's just, uh, Bad thing to piss off the exes, and that I agree with. Usually uh, goes <laughs> that I absolutely agree with, uh, especially if you're still financially and some forward tied to them. <laughs> yes, you want to keep yeah, Barry, Barry, What are you talking about? <laughs> See, I was I was very lucky in that sense. So you know that that wasn't uh, that wasn't an issue because at the time I was so fucking poor, there was nothing to take. You know, I was just a dirt poor son of a bitch because. You know, I wasn't one of those guys that got the opportunity to have a big push, and I certainly wanted one, but I just, I never got that, and so I didn't, 
I never was financially, re, you know, made a shitload of money in the wrestling business. Yeah. So, hey, just to, if you're just joining us right now, we have as a very special guest, and this is not somebody I believe that does a lot of podcast interviews because I'm not familiar with any that are out there, but we have Max Payne, Man Mountain Rock, Buffalo Peterson joining us. He is coming to us courtesy of our old friend, the captain, Nick Massey, Captain's Corner. Got a couple of appearances coming up early next month. There is a 10 p.m. start time. Saturday, March the 5th, Captain's Cabana, party number five with Max uh, in a later start time than usual. I am assuming, Max, you had a reputation as a guy who uh, who liked to live a lifestyle. So you're still staying up late. I know 10 o'clock comes around and I'm getting ready for bed. Kudos to you still being able to to do this. But if you've never seen one of Nick's live events that he does, the virtual signings, they are a lot of fun. I know that this one is going to be great. So again, that's March the 5th, Saturday, 10 p.m. start time. And then the next day, there is a, if you want to meet Max in person, let's say you don't live in the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, I'll even throw Pennsylvania, quad states. Not in any of those states, but you still want to be able to interact with Max, get some signed autographs, whether it's photos, memorabilia, etc. He will be appearing on Sunday, March the 6th from 11 to 2 p.m. at the Wrestling Collector live in-store signing. This is a great place. This is in Stockholm, New Jersey. Jeff, you ever been to Stockholm, New Jersey? Oh, yeah. I think that's where I honeymooned with my second wife. Uh, ah, that's, so that's, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. She thought you were going to fucking Sweden and then, <laughs> and then you found out the fucking truth. And she, exactly. That's why the whole divorce thing started that out. That is brother. why I threw it at a curb. <laughs> well, there you go. Another great response. So it, it, Nick is a good friend of ours. Nick has uh, provided us with many guests, but I talked to Nick on a weekly basis and Nick said, you're going to really enjoy talking to Max. Make sure you ask him about some new Japan pro wrestling dojo stories. These are stories you're going to want to hear and your listeners are going to want to hear. Max stage is all yours. Tell us about the jo the dojo and new Japan pro wrestling. Ooh, that's a, you know, that's probably, you know, I thought I was, like I said, you know, when I, forgive me, I have to preface this with, I'm, I don't, it's, it's, it, okay. Well, first of all, if you're a fucking wrestler, you don't mind talking about yourself because that's the whole business is <laughs> fucking quicker over. But I thought I was a badass in college by getting through the, the wrestling rooms I got through. You know, I going through Iowa State, and you know everybody in the room was a badass. You know, they were coming. They, I mean, they're, it's just like Ohio football for Christ's sake. Everybody on the field is fucking, you know, state champ or all state football players, top tier, and that's the way it was at Iowa State because, you know, Iowa State and Iowa were. I mean, there's really. I mean, not. Forgive me, Lehigh's in there too, but the big fucking heart. I mean, that's all I ever wanted to do was go to the Midwest to wrestle because at that time, the Oklahoma schools and the Iowa schools were one, two, three, and four. That's just the way it was. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was just amazing. And I thought I was a badass getting through those. I really did. And went to California, and I'll never forget the first time I 
I took a fucking bump in a ring. It was a red bass thing. The guy that trained me, you know, I don't know if you know that, but he's the one that trained me, he trained Sting and Warrior and Angel of Death and Stronger Seed the Salvo. He had a big class of guys. And then the next school, he didn't have any guys. And so he asked me if I wanted to come. I said, Red, I just don't, I don't got any money. He said, I'll put you to work for the WWF. And he goes, I'd rather just teach you because I think I can get you booked. Because Red was just the kindest, hardest, hardest. I mean, he was just, he was so spectacular. He taught me so much. Um, I feel so honored to have known an old timer. And within a week after starting training with him, he loved me because I was a shooter, man. The, you know, those old school guys, they fucking love shooters. And, um, you know, he told me, he said, listen, kid, when you come to work for me building the ring, you bring your goddamn bag with you. He said, make sure you got your boots and your wrestling clothes with you because you never know what's going to happen. And one night, Jay Strongboat, come up to red and said hey we got this guy from san diego who's a football player he thinks he's badass you think max would stretch this guy to show him that he doesn't want to be a wrestler <laughs> so i got put into that kind of shit often within a week or two after starting to train with red red came to me one day and he goes you know there's there's really no more territories in the United States where you can go and make any money. The only place I could get you to make any money right now would be Australia or Japan. Would you be willing to do that? And I said, Red, I'm going to do this, and I, I got to be willing to do anything. And the idea of going to Japan, we when I was in high school, we'd had an exchange student from Japan stay with us. And I didn't get to wrestling because I had to be in the movie that night. So he wrestled one of my, the guys that was in the room, um, but he stayed with me. So I, I always loved Japan, man. You know, Kiss was in, they, they had all kinds of shit from Japan. So when he said Japan, I thought, wow, how cool would that be? And within another couple of weeks, I found out I was going. I mean, they, they came and watched me, this lady named Chika Kujiroka came and watched me wrestle and the next day red called me and she said he said they want you and i said what does that mean he goes well you're gonna go over there for like a year and then you know um then they'll they'll do whatever they do with you and i said cool and he said well and i said well how much do i make he goes well you'll make 1500 bucks a week while you're there i'm like holy shit Okay, that sounds great. There was only one problem with it, is my wife, when I walked out the door, was seven and a half months pregnant with my only baby girl. So as you can imagine, there was a little kinetic friction little heat, uh, between little bit of me and the split toe. She wasn't happy. But I went anyway. I flew to Los Angeles in August. And when I got there, they took me to, Chica took me to a restaurant where Sakaguchi was, uh, Seiji Sakaguchi was, who was at the time the president of New Japan Pro Wrestling. And uh, there was another guy sitting in the seat across from me, and I'd never met him. And Chica says, oh, uh, Master, this is uh, Karisu Benoit. And I said, really? Wow, nice to meet you. So I met Chris Benoit that moment in Los Angeles when we were getting ready to go to the dojo in Japan. 
And uh, I, I'll tell you, Chris had worked in Calgary and, and had he'd already worked with Dynamite. Dynamite had taught him a bunch of stuff, and he was already he had a pretty good, you know, experience level under his belt. I had nothing. I mean, no experience at all. You know, I just was Red's training camp, and that was it. I, they sent me to Japan. And so they start, you know, when we first had, I don't know how much you know about Japan. When you go in a house in Japan, you take your shoes off. And typical fucking gaijin Americans, we go racing in the house with our shoes on, and every one of them going, no, 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 you got to take your shoes off. It's like, oh, sorry. So we learned all of the shit the hard way. But the hardest thing that we ever did was the shit called the temple stairs. They were these stairs that were just fucking wicked you couldn't run each stair with a just a single step it was like the ultimate dichotomy because if you tried to run them you could do it you could take the single step but the next day you'd be so sore you couldn't wipe your ass so then you had to make the decision whether you were going to double step it which if you double stepped it then it was twice as hard you know and then they'd make us pull semi-tires and stuff but the temple stairs literally chris and i would toss a coin to see who was going to go downstairs to get us like you know fruit and popsicles or whatever because it was summer on top of it and so it was hotter than hell and humid tokyo is very humid and uh you know like i said i I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade that experience for the world. I wouldn't. I mean, I'm sad I missed my daughter's birth and I adore her. But the truth of the matter was, good God, it was the land of the rising sun. And I didn't just go there as a fucking, you know, a guy on a wrestling tour. I lived there with them and saw, you know, lived in the dojo, which, you know, at the time you don't realize what it means. Now I watch New Japan on TV and I'm like, holy shit. It's amazing how much of their lifestyle I actually understand because I was there. And uh, it was amazing. I can't tell you, you know, the great thing about being there is, you know, you, you go to the, you go to the arena every night. We work out at the arena for like an hour and a half. And then we'd put our, uh, you know, our ring boy, uniforms on we go out and lean at ringside for the rest of the night carry jackets back and forth and that's basically what we did until we finished up japan was awesome i was a little probably too old and a little set in my ways yeah i'm one of those guys that i'm pretty thick-headed and not only that i've been working very hard on building a character that i wanted to be the rest of my life you know what i mean in the max Payne character and when I told them I wanted to be Max Payne, they weren't happy. That was the thing that probably pissed them off the most. But I had nothing but great times. Chris Benoit was just, you know, I, I, it's very, it's like, it's like trying to say anything good about Hitler. I realize that now because it's what he did. I, I mean, I, it's beyond atrocious. But I never saw anything like that in the guy, not even close. He was such a good friend. He was so funny. He would he would fucking come to Atlanta. I had an apartment in Atlanta when I went to WCW. 
And he's actually the one that helped me get there too. He talked to Bill Watts as well as Rip Rogers. So I gave him a key to my apartment because he was at the time was coming in and out from Japan and doing a bunch of other shots in Germany and stuff. And so I gave him a key to my apartment. I said, dude, you can come stay at my house anytime. I don't, you don't even have to call. He said, no, I'll always call you. And I said, well, that's fine, but you don't have to, Chris. You can come anytime you want. And he was so fucking funny because as you can imagine, the dojo, when I say the dojo, let me just give you a quick rundown of what we were dealing with. This wasn't a room with your own bathroom in it and, you know, a American toilet. And this was a room with two beds in it. Chris and I's beds were in the room. We, so we were literal boarding mates in a dojo where there was 12 other guys. And let me tell you the guys that were in the dojo just real quick so you can understand who we're talking about. When I first got there, Jeshin Liger was the dojo boss. Muto had just left. Fabius Muto has just left. Liger was dojo boss at the time. When he left, Chono became dojo boss. When he left, I think it was Nogami was next. Then Funaki, Izuka, Takeyuki Izuka. And um, there's a couple other really amazing stories in there. Probably don't have time for them today, but. I have another really great story about a really famous Japanese wrestler who didn't go through the dojo. But that just gives you kind of an idea. Hashimoto was the dojo boss. So, as you can hear, uh, at the time, Fujinami, Kamuda, they had just joined with the first original shoot group. Most people don't realize this, but the real first original group of shooters that tried to make it happen was when New Japan divided and took Maeda, Akita Maeda, over to the UWF, and they had two groups within the organization at one time, which was New Japan and UWF. And UWF was coming in to be kind of the shooting, not kind of, they were the shooters that stuck to more of the full-contact karate stuff. And it was amazing. It was it was an amazing, amazing time. I, I was trained by a guy named Fujiwara, who's probably one of the most famous shooters ever to come out of Japan. He's still alive, which blows my fucking mind. I watched that guy smash his head into a turnbuckle every single night. So how he doesn't have CTE, I would never understand. But he taught me how to shoot. He taught me how to, to uh, hook and do submission wrestling. And that's what they were doing in the UWF. And then shortly after that, Horse Gracie and all the whole fucking, that whole thing started right then. And it was because of the UWF in New Japan that that all started. So I got to sit. I wasn't ringside, bro, like in a seat. I was fucking, Chris and I would put our elbows on the canvas. <laughs> because in case they, you know, needed help or what you if you've watched new japan you see the young boys around the ring all the time absolutely that's what we did yeah, yeah that's so, what we did gotcha so and and with that too it's uh hearing some of these stories are absolutely amazing so fujiwara and you just brought up fujiwara i saw fujiwara geez it was 1992 i think maybe 91 he did a there was a card I guess it was UWFI, and it was a card that took place in Miami at the Miami James L. Knight Center. Ken Shamrock was on this card. 
Fujiwara, a host of other guys, but even, and he was an older guy then, at least he looked like an older guy, but the level of respect and the fact that you could see what a badass he was, even at that stage. So being in Japan at that stage, going through the dojo, you mentioned a lot of heavy hitters right there. Who was the toughest guy that you encountered? Not necessarily either wrestled, but maybe the toughest guy that you met or had some sort of interaction with. So the only way I can answer that is with the story that I was going to tell you, which was this one night, let me me start a different way. So the way it worked when we lived in Japan was the Japanese would do like 11 tours a year, 10 tours a year. So they'd have a four-week tour and two weeks off, and then a three-week tour and one week off, and then, you know, a five-week tour and you know, 10 days off. And then, you know, so that's the way the schedule was. So why we were off, we didn't get paid, but we could live in the dojo and eat. So, you know, any money we had, we usually went to fucking Tokyo and spent it. But by the same token, it was awesome. But this one particular tour, we got done and Sakaguchi is counting our money out to us, which was always fucking great. You know, man, they give you these little paper envelopes with these fucking cool little Japanese bows on them and shit and it's got your fucking brand new sequential dollar bills in it it was just spectacular so we're sitting there talking to Gooch and he says he goes listen the Japanese young boys are all the dojo guys are all going to fucking Saipan and you and Chris aren't going because they've been paying for it and we're like what what the hell? And he goes, sorry, you know, they've been paying for it for a couple of years and they take money out of their checks and, you know, blah, yeah, whatever. You just don't want to fucking take his list on shit, nobody. <laughs> so anyway, it's okay. Cause we're just fucking gaijings and, you know, so they leave us in the fucking dojo with the very, you know, lowest guys on the fucking rung, right? So we're upstairs listening to music and drawing crude fucking cartoons and shit. Chris and I got so bored, I got entered. So this is an aside, like on a stage where I walk to the side and I go, we were so fucking bored that we had this freezing spray and we had a pain contest. This is how serious, I swear to God, this is how the origin of Max Payne, the true fucking fundamental origin of Max Payne started. I looked at Chris and we were fucking spraying our hands and seeing how cold that shit would get because it's just fucking nitrogen, right? Liquid nitrogen. And uh, the Japanese carried in their their first aid kits. And so we always had a can. So when you like you strained a knee or an ankle or whatever, you just spray the shit on. So Chris and I were fucking bored. And we were doing it to ourselves, having a pain contest. And see who could do it the longest. And he said, let's do it to each other and see who quits first. <laughs> I said, fuck that, I'm not quitting. So we started spraying this fucking cold spray on each other. And oh my God, Jesus Christ, when we finished, we both got frostbite and then skin died and turned black and shit. And Chris gave, I will say in fairness, Chris gave up first. I I did, I did win. If winning is what you want to call a 50 cent (laughs) size scar that was, you know, clear to the bone for God's sakes. Um, because it died and then the skin fell out and you just had a big open wound until it finally healed up. But that that's the level of boredom that we dealt with. But this one night, it was right before they were going to Saipan. 
And uh, I start here, it's like 10 o'clock at night, and I hear fucking guys wrestling in the dojo, right? The way it was set up, the dojo was a separate building, and the dojo, so it was like a big, it was like a miniature hotel, and then the dojo was like this big garage, this big tin garage they built on it, had a full ring and a full gym in it, and all kinds of torture devices in it for you to fucking have to exercise with. But all of a sudden, I'm, I'm hearing this noise. I said, Chris, you're hearing that? It sounds like somebody's down at fucking work. And he's go, I, he said, yeah. I goes, I don't, I'm just going to stay here and eat my popsicle. I said, I'm going to go check it out. So I go down there, and I walk in, and uh, Funaki and Sano are in there with this really little dude. And they are beating the fuck out of him. And I don't mean just a little bit, fellas. I mean, they are kicking his ass seven ways from Sunday, both of them. They're at least 75 pounds bigger than he is. And the reason they're kicking his ass is because right when I walk in, he's walking on the fucking ropes without anybody holding his hand. Wow. He's walking across the ropes from one side to the other, and he's actually limping on the ropes because these two fuckers are kicking the shit out of him and trying to break his ankle. So right when I get there, they put him in the corner and Sano goes clear the fuck on the other side of the ring and comes running like he's going to fucking break his ankle. And I realized what he's doing. I said, don't fucking do it, man. And he goes, what? And I said, oh, you. So I went upstairs. I just fucking ran out and went and grabbed Chris. And I said, Chris, you got to come help me. He goes, what? I said, just come with me. So I go back down there, and Dal Funaki's got him and just about ready to do the same thing. And he would have broke his ankle right that second. He had it on the second turnbuckle, and he was, like, on the top rope getting ready to fucking drop a shooting ass drop on this kid's ankle on the fucking second turnbuckle. And I looked at Funaki, and I said, don't you fucking do it. And he stopped, and he looked at me, and he goes, what? I said, don't you fucking hurt. Don't don't fucking do one more thing to that kid. Because he's fucking literally, he's not crying. But, you know, he's got this grimace on his face. You know, kind of like when Dexter would fucking wrap a dude up and the dude knew he was going <laughs> to die. Yes. I love it. <laughs> that, that kind of face. So, Funaki says, Pita, you no understand. I said, no, I fucking understand. This is your Japanese bullshit tradition, but this isn't tradition. You're just trying to fucking hurt this kid because he's really good and you're scared of him. So fucking leave him alone. And I said, if Funaki looks at me like he's going to challenge him, I said, go ahead, bro. I said, I'm ready. And then him and Santa looked at each other and they jumped out of the ring and they kind of fucking, you know, that just such a typical scene where two fucking asshole bullies and I, the funny part is i really liked funaki i never liked Sano, but i always loved funaki and it just broke my heart to be honest with you so they leave and we start talking to this kid we went and got him some ice and got him some cold spray and some bengay and got him in the whirlpool and you know just everything took care of him those guys left because they were going to saipan in the morning so this kid stayed with us for two weeks while these guys were gone to Saipan. And this guy from the office, his name was, he was actually one of the, he was higher than Sakaguchi. He was an owner. 
that was like a token guy that just went in there and sat in the office because he was so famous. His name was Yamada, or excuse me, Yamamoto. One of the old school Yamamotos. This is like before, this is like before Ricky Choshu and, and Fujinami and Kimura and Maeda. He was like the generation before. He was Sakaguchi, big, ba, giant Baba. You know, he was of that era. So anyway, he hung out with us. And then during the night, Yamamoto would come and train him. And we had so much fun. Fuck, we went to uh, Shinjuku and Harajuku with him and took him and had food. And just, he took us all over because he, he just was, <laughs> he was just a good kid, man, you know? And, um, then he said, he came to us and this is like right before the guys came back to the dojo the day before he goes, okay. You know, he came to Chris and I and fuck, he started crying and he said, I, I got to leave. And I said, where are you going? He's like, I, I'm leaving for Mexico tomorrow. And I'm like, what? And Chris is, are you kidding? And he goes, no, Yamamoto just called me and said, he got me booked in Mexico and I'm leaving tomorrow. Apparently, like, we've got some oh. outage loop. Jeff, what did you say? I'm sorry. We've got some system out, out, outage in my neighborhood, and it's not going to be fucking fixed until 730. You just made the announcement for everybody listening, too, but uh, I'll clue Max <laughs> in with this. And, and I guess everybody listening, Jeff has got an, an Internet outage, so he's been gone for about 10 or 15 minutes. But Max, you being one of the best guests we've ever had, you're just taking the ball and running with this. So this is fantastic. If you are just joining us, and Jeff, that's for you actually, because you're just joining us at this point. We have got internet. Fucking internet. It's a it's a WWE plot to to stop this right now. But we have either uh, that or the nasty boys. I don't know who. Exactly. We're gonna get to that. Bring it on. (laughs) Bring it fucking on. There it is. We're, we're definitely going to get to that. We have got Max Payne, whether you know him as Max Payne, Man Mountain Rock, or any of his other gimmicks. He is coming to us courtesy of our old friend, the captain, Nick Massey of Captain's Corner. And there's a couple of events coming up that I think everybody's going to want to be able to take a part of. There is Captain's Cabana Party Number 5 starting on March the 5th, which is a Saturday at 10 p.m. start time. This will be a virtual signing. You can get photos, merchandise. You can send in your own items. And as you can tell from this interview, Max is a very friendly, talkative guy. You will not want to miss that. And then he's doing an in-store appearance. This taking place Sunday, March the 6th of this year between 11 and 2 at the Wrestling Collector, which is in Stockholm, New Jersey, not Stockholm, Sweden. I can tell you, I met Max at Nick's first event, which is called was called the Classic, which uh, was this past October in uh, Connecticut. And Max was there. Max had a, a really long line. But I tell you, one of the cool things that I saw at that event, and I wanted to share this, and uh, because this is something I took notice of, Chris Hero, and. Chris is a friend of mine. Chris is a wrestling. He's not just a a fantastic professional wrestler. He is a wrestling historian, a guy that grew up a pro wrestling fan. Chris made his way over to your table at the end of the day and spent about 30 to 45 minutes with you just talking. And and, and that's one of the cool things about these events where wrestlers will go up. And I'm assuming you had never met Chris before. Maybe I'm wrong, but wrestlers. 
He's brilliant, man. I've talked to him a shitload of times since. So isn't he great? He's just he's such a great guy. He loves to pick your brain. He loves to hear oh, your stories. Such a fan. What is it like for you at, at being on the circuit, doing these signings, and having younger talent come up to you that want to discuss the business with you? What's that like for you? Well, let me answer that for you in the coolest. This is such you're going to fucking freak out over this segue. So, you know that show we were at, right? Yep. So, I go in and I look over. And so, you guys know that I, when I left the business, I left the business. I'm that guy that didn't fucking watch television. I don't know anything about wrestling after 1995 at all. I can't tell you the matches between The Rock and Steve Austin or nothing. I went home and raised my children and basically was a bitter, foolish, stupid. No, I, that, I wasn't bitter. Not that I didn't have a right to be. No, I was fucking bitter. God damn it. I was really bitter because I, I really didn't understand what was going on. So when I got this call to come back to the wrestling business, I think I still have a story to tell. And I'm certainly not a main event guy. I, I know that. But I think had somebody given me the opportunity, I damn well could have been. And I still don't understand why they didn't because I think they could have made a lot of fucking money with me. But you know, we went to that show and uh, that was the first show. I don't know if you know this. That's the first show, a public appearance I'd done in the wrestling business since 1997. Wow. Like I said, I just basically left the business and Cappy's uh, cohort, Cappy gave him a, a mandate and he tracked me down and he found me through a soft spot in <laughs> he found me through my weakness, which is my daughter. And uh, she wrote me. She said, hey, this guy is trying to get a hold of you. He wants to come do an autograph signing session. Well, if you're a wrestler, what's the first thing you think? Fucking bullshit. Because honestly, you guys, I, I didn't realize that I didn't even realize. I know this sounds stupid, but I this is how detached I was. I didn't realize that there was even a fucking market for this i was so remote and so when we went to that show it was so exciting to see a whole bunch of people i hadn't seen lawler jeff jarrett uh kevin even though kevin's not a big fan of me but flair avoided me like he always did when i was in the business walked right by me and didn't even fucking acknowledge me that's how irrelevant i was to him then and now but the funny well, thing and i know i'm because of Apparently, he's irrelevant to uh, certain aspects of the wrestling business uh, from what he says on Twitter, too. So, please, I'm sorry, continue. No, you know, it's funny because, uh, I, brother, there's you're going to find out I'm fucking about to unleash because, I, like I said, I got a pretty fucking crazy story to tell. And I think the world's going to be fucking interested in hearing it. And it's finally my turn to fucking tell it. So I'm going to tell it. Anyway, <laughs> we're at that. <laughs> we're at the gym, right? And I see. I look over and I see Sonny. Oh, no. And I'm like, I don't know him, but God, he looks familiar. And all of a sudden, he makes his way over and he looks down at the, um, the table I'm sitting at. And there's a picture of me and Chris in the fucking New Japan dojo with a Noki behind us. And Sonny goes, 
that's New Japan's dojo. I said, yeah, I, I lived there. And he went, really? With Chris? And I said, yeah. He goes, are you Peter? And I said, <laughs> I said, yeah. Oh, he goes, oh, my God. And he started putting shit together. And he goes, fucking come over and see me before you leave, man. I said, I want to I do something in Japan again so bad my teeth ache. So I'm looking over there. And there's a guy with a mask on. And I don't think nothing of it, right? So I, um, you know, it comes the end of that session. And uh, I walk over there. And I'm starting to talk to Tony, and I, you know, I just nodded my head at the guy in the mouth because I didn't know who the fuck he was, right? Tony looks at me and he goes, he knows you. I said, he does? Where does he know me from? The dojo. I said, the dojo? He didn't, did he live in the dojo? He goes, no, it's a site. The guy I was telling you the story about that Funaki and Santa was trying to fuck with yeah. was Ultimo Dragon. Oh. And he fucking looked at me and he goes, Pita, oh, and he, we just fucking stood there and hugged for about 30 seconds. I hadn't seen him. And the first thing he says to me, he, he wrote to me the next day, actually, and said, I owe you my life. And I said, fuck, no, you don't. It's funny, man. You fucking every japanese people are very they're not very emotional they don't they don't hug and shit but i it was so exciting to see him because he left the dojo and within fucking two months kurnako black cat god rest his soul came to me and said hey i just got a message from a side because kurnako was actually a mexican chinese japanese I don't know if you knew who Kurnako was. Black Cat. Yeah. yeah. Black Cat. Kurnako was a Mexican Chinese immigrant to Japan. And uh, he came, you know, he knew all the things that were going on in Mexico. He kept up to, up to date with all the Mexicans. And he fucking comes to Chris and I and he goes, hey, I just want you to know, I got a message from the guy who is running the territory in Mexico and Asai is on top already. He's been there for fucking two months and he's on top. I'm like, I'm so fucking happy for him. But Funaki and Sano, aside, battled with his ankles. I know for a fact his whole career, because when he got to Mexico, he had to tape every night and they, they really fucked him up. They, if he, they wouldn't have done that damn but he had another five years on his career. But he literally told me that that day, I, I, you know, I didn't even think about that. You know what I mean? After you do something like that, then we hung out with him, went to McDonald's. You know, I, I honestly thought I'd never see the kid again. You know, I just was happy to fucking save his life at the moment. Both Chris and I were like, holy shit. You know, it's one of those moments. And then when I saw him, I mean, think about the irony of this, you guys. The first fucking thing I go to, I see a sign. I mean... I, I, my heart just melted and I went, well, I guess it is my time to come back out of the closet. So aside the toughest fucking guy, because if anybody watched the ass kicking that those guys were giving him and what he looked like for the next two weeks, you'd understand why I think aside the most badass son of a bitch on the planet. Wow. So I know who Fanaki is. Who is the other guy? 
Sano, uh, I don't remember his last name right now, but him and Funaki did a lot of stuff together. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Well, and Sano was a junior heavyweight. Yeah. Yeah. He just was one of those guys that really fucking pissed me off because he came into the dojo and he hadn't been, we'd never seen him before. And he came in acting like he owned the fucking place. And Chris and I were like, you know, we bowed up, you know, typical Americans, hey, motherfucker, we've been here longer than you. You know, <laughs> but it was, it was great. I, I mean, I didn't have any problems with Bunaki after that. I never had any issues with Sano because I just fucking ignored him like the plague, you know? So let me ask you, how long was your stay when you went over to the dojo? I stayed the first time till from August till Christmas. Then I had to okay. go home and have surgery on my testicles at Christmas time, which oh, as you can imagine. Oh yeah. That's why well, I, I had I, a daughter. I had a vasectomy that fell, so I had to go home and have that fixed while I was in Japan. So the fucked up part about it, I'll just be this is probably way more personal than I should be. But I couldn't <laughs> even go home and have fucking sex. <laughs> I hadn't seen my wife in four months, and I couldn't go home and have sex because my nuts were fucked up. Wow! Now that—that's what they call a bummer. So, I, so yeah, that's first. truly a bummer, right? I had to go home, and I had to spend the whole time I was there in this transition break getting my nuts fixed. So I did. I got my testicles fixed. I went back, and I was there for another five months, and then so I went back two or three more times. They brought in some Russians. And they yes. had they had some Russians on tour, and you know what's funny? Yeah, Here's another. I'm going to tell you two really funny stories. What a small world it is, right? So you remember the Japanese guy I was telling you about that stayed at my house? His name was Ando Messiah, and when I got to Japan to the dojo, I got a card from him. They all knew him. He went to school, high school, with a bunch of them. Wow. He goes, it's Peter Cumps. And I never got to see him, but I always wanted to see him again and say, oh, my God, what a small world. Then the Russians come, and I, I'll never forget this guy because he had such a great Russian name. He came and stayed at my house at Iowa State because we did an exchange program. I didn't get to wrestle him either because I'd just blown my knee, and so I couldn't wrestle this guy. Another heavyweight wrestled him from Iowa State, but he stayed at my house. And I, I just happened to know one of the chicks on the wrestling squad who ended up thinking he was the shit and he got laid while he was here. So that made him really happy. <laughs> and I get to Japan and his name was Vladimir Berkovitz. And here the fucking guy is sitting in the dressing room. Wow. Wow. Is that crazy shit? That's Russian. Yeah. And here he is sitting in the, in the dressing room going, holy shit. So there you have it. Well, here's here's why I was asking you about how long you stayed uh, the first time, because Barry, now I can share with Max the rest of the story. I was in Japan going to New Japan shows in November and December of 1987 while you were there, because that's with when the Chris Benoit. No, no, when, the first, the very first time in '87 uh, before the Russians got there. But that's when Chris Benoit was wrestling as Dynamite Chris. Yeah. And for the for the yep. Japan Dojo. So who were, because uh, I was there uh, with a tour that would have had uh, Dick Murdoch and Scott Hall and Ron Ritchie and Ron Starr and those guys for the tag team tournament 
It was right after Maeda did the shoot kick on Choshu's face. You were there. You were. Did you I were on was, tour with New Japan? I, no, no, I didn't go on tour with New Japan. I came over with uh, with a couple guys as the uh, fanboys, <laughs> and we were there like two weeks. No shit. But we were there. Yeah, we were there for the. Uh, the <laughs> we have another. Can you fucking believe it story? Um, <laughs> holy so, no, no, but I was, I was, Yeah, I was there for the uh, the the finals of the tag team tournament in New Japan and all that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, no, that was fucking yeah. amazing. And one of the things uh, I've, I've told the story before, we went to a spot show in a small town and literally, you know, other than the guys that were working, we were the three only three people in the building that spoke English. And there was a referee there whose name was Petey, who was a Japanese guy that basically Peter Takahashi. Yeah. And uh, that was the night, famously, that Kerry and Kevin Von Erich were wrestling Asamu Kido and uh, Nobuhiko Takata. And because of uh, Takata's reputation, you know, being a UWF guy, they get in the ring and Kevin, Kevin Von Erich, unfortunately, decided to uh, tell Takata, uh, go ahead, shoot your shit, motherfucker. <laughs> so, so oh, Takata, God, I, dude, <laughs> don't even get Takata, me started on fucking Von Erich's story. <laughs> Takata, like, ended up uh, kicking him about 10 times in four seconds, like right across the, uh, the chest. And uh, Kevin turned, tagged out to Kerry, and said, "It's your turn. You go in." Fuck this, so, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it was I, I man. <laughs> oh my God, Chris and I used to just fucking sit and laugh because the shit these fucking guys did. I don't, I don't care who you are. You know, to go to Japan when somebody's paying you good money. And be an asshole fucking American. You know, there's, a, there's being an asshole as a heel. And then there's being an asshole because you're a fucking asshole. And those are the guys I had a real fucking problem with. And I never understood. Like, for example, Lance Von Eric comes to Tokyo. And he's going to wrestle at the fucking sumo palace with uh, Kimura. So Chris and I do, you know, it was always fun, guys, because we were just, I miss him so bad because I just want to say, God, remember, because I'd like to have his input because he's the only other fucking guy that knows any of this shit, you know, and we would lean on the fucking apron and when shit would happen, we would just look our eyes at each other. You know, we'd never turn our heads or nothing and we'd go, oh, my fucking God. So we're in the Sumo Palace and they play Kimura's music. And he comes out, right? And he, he's in the ring, and he's untying his rope, and he's dancing around, getting ready to, you know, do the match. And Lance Von Erich's music starts to play. And, dude, we had just seen the guy 30 minutes before. No shit. 30 minutes. Just normal. Just a normal D-Dad. You'll understand where I'm going with this. So... He comes, he starts to come to the ring, and I swear to God, it looks like young boys are carrying him. And I'm thinking, wow, what's going on? And by the time he rounds the corner to go to ringside, you can tell Lance is so fucked up, he can barely stand up. Now, I don't know what he did. I'm not going to say anything that he, you know, I wouldn't make that presumption. But he was so fucking blasted. He could not fucking stand up. By the time he got in the ring, 
but start to get his robe off. Kimura was so fucking pissed at him that as soon as Lance dropped his rope or his rope, and I and I mean he just like it just fell off his shoulders with his back to Kimura. When he turned around, Kimura kicked him as hard as he could fucking kick him about five times. And Lance just went fucking down like a fucking rock. And Kimura jumped out of the ring and left. <laughs> Lance laid there for about, I thought they were going to have to bring fucking paramedics there, you know. And they, they hauled him off. They might have, to be honest with you, they might have brought paramedics. Because Kimura kicked, it was, it was totally a shoot fucking, Kimura was so pissed at him. Because I'm sure they'd paid him a lot of money to come in. And he deprived oh, the so you're, you're the talking, people. That... You're talking about Kengo Kimura? Yeah. Kengo Kimura. Oh, okay. yep. I just wanted to clarify who you were talking about. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. Please continue. Yeah, because him and Fujinami, like I said, Fujinami, yes. Kimura, Joshi was there, Takata, Yamada, all of those guys were there at the time. And uh, it was it was nutty, man. But, I, you know, that <laughs> the Von Erich, just every time they came, it was trouble. It was always trouble. So, Barry, as we begin to wrap up this particular, uh, it's kind of an elongated episode of Breaking Kiffy because we're nothing if not what, Barry? We're givers. We're givers. We are. We're absolutely givers. So, just to finish up what we had talked about a week or two ago, Barry, you've had a chance. You've finished with Reacher, correct? Oh, did I finish with Reacher? Yes, I did. How big a thumbs up are you going to give that show? Oh, I am going to take my thumb and I'm going to shove it. Oh, wait, you mean a different. It is okay, a huge, please. huge thumbs up. I'll tell you what. I went into Reacher. It took one episode. First off, the guy playing Reacher is the perfect superhero, right? Because he legit yeah. is a fucking look at this guy. He's a fucking superhero to begin with. But he he nails it. The story was great. Everything about Reacher. I was very happy to read that. We will be seeing more Reacher. Correct. Jeff, I have. Two. I have a show that I have to recommend to you now. Oh, what's that? Peacemaker, starring John Cena. I was going to say, physically speaking, the guy that plays Reacher, I think uh, compatible to uh, to Cena. What do you think? He does. They have the yeah. same shaped head, right? Yeah. There's a, yeah. a real there. So the, the two shows, there's a similarity to the shows. Reacher is a, a little more serious. Peacemaker is tongue-in-cheek. A lot of it is, it's, you know, it's satire, it's uh, it's fun, it's a little lighter, it's maybe Cobra Kai in some ways. You're not going to take Peacemaker too seriously. At the same time, the comparisons between the show absolutely exist. I sat down yesterday, I watched a, which I told you about this earlier, I watched a Korean zombie movie called Hashtag Alive which is almost a companion piece to the show that you and I both watched. Uh, All of us are dead also on Netflix. We are already dead. We are already dead. Something, right? But I tell you what, before you go to that new show, let me just say, I have, uh, at the time that we recorded this, like the last day or two, I finished watching We Are Already Dead, which is absolutely, you know, I, as I was thinking about the show and I was trying to figure out what, what can I suggest this to you know, people that like, like uh, walking dead. Okay. Like if I was going to recommend this to people that are into the movie or the TV show, the walking dead, uh, could I compare it to that? Well, there's also, and I hate to make this comparison cause I know I'm going to turn off somebody, but stay with me on this folks. There's a Beverly Hills, 90210 component too. 
because there's like some high school bullshit that goes on. But I will say, besides that and the Walking Dead component, you also have there are moments that are kind of uh, very dark humor. You know, uh, I don't know if you noticed that, Barry. I certainly did. Where you're thinking, okay, this is just like endless, like you know, zombies after these people, and then somebody will do something when, and you'll kind of start laughing. You'll go like, oh my god, they like just threw this really dark spirited humor in there, and it really makes it worthwhile. I can't recommend this show enough, Barry. It is outstanding. Yeah. So I, uh, so here was the other funny thing. I had, I had watched, shit. I think it was the first two or three episodes of that show, and I wasn't really taken with it, and I switched over to Reacher. And I, I polished off Reacher, I want to say two days, maybe two and a half days, and I was done. And then based off of your recommendation for, what is it called? All of us are dead? Or we're, we're we all are dead? already dead. We are already dead. I went back because you said it picks up in the second half of the series. And you were right, because I, I, I didn't like the characters in the beginning, the first couple episodes. By the end, I really there were some of the characters I really liked. And you made a great point. And this will be a spoiler of some degree. You said that one of the risks that this show takes and, and the balls is that they kill off major characters and they do. And uh, I was really bummed when one of those characters was killed off at the same time. It was risky. It was a risky move. And I liked it. I believe this has also been renewed for a second season. Correct. I like that a lot, but my recommendation to you, Jeff, HBO max peacemaker, you will not be disappointed. And I will say without mentioning the name of the show, I have started a new show what? on Netflix. Uh, I'm four episodes in, and I told Barry before we started recording, this is very interesting. I won't say the name of the show because I want to finish season one. There is a genre out there that I asked Barry if he'd ever heard of it because I had never heard of it. It is called Nordic Noir. Nordic Noir, for those uh, unfamiliar with that term, is about noirish uh, dark stories, uh, like crime stories that take place in, quote, cold environments. The show that I'm watching takes place in Finland. Yes, I'm using subtitles to watch. Oh, actually, you know what? I'm sorry. That's incorrect. They have it, uh, what do you call uh, the English la language version? So I don't need the subtitles in there. But uh, the show I'm watching, uh, if I finish up the first season before our next recording, I will tell you what it is. And get so far, the first four episodes very strong, Barry. Uh, some good, uh, good, very uh, dark violence. Uh, you know, like uh, uh, good things, good acting too. So uh, I will get into that next episode. Two last things before we do the old go home. I want to encourage. I, I, I've mentioned before that I'm on Twitter uh, at Bowdrin and Jeff. But I want to recommend a, a friend of the show, a guy that I know he's been on 605 before whenever they have the Hall of Fame induction or, uh, you know, like uh, the voting for the Hall of Fame. Uh, that's our friend, uh, Alan Blackstock, who is uh, at Alan, A-L-L-A-N underscore cheap shot on Twitter. He posts some amazing content like old school wrestling photos. Uh, he's, you know, from the UK, but not just from the UK, like stuff from this country, stuff from Japan. Great, great content. I encourage you to follow him on there. Last thing I want to get to, Barry, Mrs. Bowdrin and I sold one of our cars the other day. We experienced something we've never done before. Barry, are you familiar with Carvana? I am, but I I think it was your wife posted something, the sainted Mrs. The Bowdrin. The sainted Mrs. Bowdrin, yes. She uh, so posted about Carvana, and I was really curious because I their fucking commercials are amazing, and when you see – 
the car vending machines, which is yes. really that that's super fucking impressive. How are they as a service? Well, I got to tell you. So what what you do is uh, I, I don't know if it's Carvana.com or whatever, but uh, when you go on there, uh, what uh, the beloved Mrs. Baldron did was I think she took a picture of the odometer uh, and she took a picture of the vehicle VIN number, sent it out to them. They evaluate what the car's worth is. Uh, in this case, what they did was they paid off uh, the rest of our loan, plus they gave us an additional amount, which was uh, very nice, uh, let me just say. Uh, so we got rid of that car. All we did was we took it, I drove it to my wife's work. Uh, the only uh, provision is once you come to an agreement with them, uh, you can't drive the car more than a thousand miles, more than what you told them was on the odometer or what you uh, sent them was on the odometer, which um, it was like maybe another 15 miles was added. So I go to my wife's uh, work. Uh, we leave the car there. The person from Carvana comes to my wife's work. There's literally five documents we had to sign. You know, uh, put your old John Hancock on there. They hand you a copy of it. And how do, would you like it? Uh, okay. Yeah. Can you put it into our checking account? Boom. Five minutes later, Mrs. Bowdering gets the notification, such and such amount of dollars has been deposited into your checking account and we're done. And they, they leave, they have a tow truck come and pick the car up at that site so that we don't have to drive it anywhere. We don't have to deal with car dealers and the and salesmen and all that kind of, you know, so Man, if you're thinking about selling a car, we got to get them as a sponsor here, Barry. Carvana, I can't recommend it enough. So, on that note, finally, Barry, I will say that Breaking K Fabe with Bowdrin and Barry, a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, the most popular show on the network. Thank you, Barry. Thank you, Lou. We'll see you next week, folks. We're out here.